subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Bobo. Cliff, how's it going? Going all right. How are you doing? Good. Um, I know the last time we were talking, we were talking about the uh, earthquake, and I, I said, I don't know how long it was. It was all like so weird, and I guess, I'm not sure the total time, but from when it hit like 5.0 and then had that intensity, it was only 16 seconds of the actual like big shaking, bouncing. 16 seconds, but how? But that must have felt like a couple minutes. My original estimation was 15 to 30, maybe up to 45 possibly, but I guess that would have been like with the kind of like the roll into it, then the roll out of it. Uh-huh. That that was probably like about 40-something seconds probably, I'd imagine. Well, that's not pretty accurate, you know, pretty accurate, 15 to 30. Yeah, not bad at all. Have you? Uh, I, I saw on the news today there's been aftershocks. You still uh, feeling those things? Uh, last two nights ago when we went to bed, there was – decent one not nothing nothing fell or anything just my personal experience this is like the least amount of strong aftershocks i've ever felt for a big quake yeah you'd think there'd be a lot more and you're so close to it I, I imagine even the small rumblers you'd be feeling but well i'm glad i'm glad it seems that you're through the worst of it um but you know the rest of the country right now is in the grips of this incredible like polar situation this crazy cold weather storm i got a text from tom shea not 20 minutes ago with a screen grab, it said negative one degree. Um, with the wind chill factor, it was negative thirty-two last night. I saw some other people um, on, on Twitter or whatever. You know, uh, you know, obviously no water in their house and stuff. Everything's frozen, and that's my situation too. I don't have any water right now. Pipes are frozen up or whatever, so we're kind of slowly dethawing those. And I didn't even have power until about an hour ago, so I thought you'd have to do this podcast alone. But I'm glad I came through. Or, well, I'm glad PGE came through. You have a wood stove in the garage, right? Or I have a wood stove uh, downstairs in the music room. Oh, in the music room. Yeah. yeah, next to my library office. And that's where I do the podcast from when I'm able to do it at home, like right now. I can't, I can't even leave right now. I can't go to the museum. The museum's closed today. There's about a half an inch of ice over everything at this point. Um, so nobody's going to be driving around. And, you know, my employees and, and, and of course, my safety are um, more important than making money for a day. Your employees? What kind of boss are you? Uh, a decent one. A, a decent boss. <laughs> You're never going to make it. It's funny. I put it on Facebook a little while ago, and people who are listening didn't go check it out. I said, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 we're going to be closed, safety. And you wouldn't believe, believe the number of people saying that, man, I wish my boss was like that. Man, I wish I didn't have to risk my life going in the storm. I wish, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, really? Don't get me wrong. I'm a capitalist, but there's, there's more to life than money, like life. Two nights ago, I lost power, and uh, it came on about, like I said, about an hour ago or something like that. Um, and Besides just being cold and um, Melissa being a little grumpy for a short while until we got the wood stove rolling. Uh, but by the way, which took a while, um, I was at work and my, my fantastic neighbor Gary came down to help Melissa out with the wood stove because we're, we're hesitant about getting getting it going because I visually saw these birds. This I don't know what kind of birds they are. They look like swifts or they're probably sparrows or something. I don't know what they are. But um, these sort of summer birds, you know, zipping around eating bugs, you know, they they fill the same ecological niche as bats, I think. But I, I see them all summer long, and they they dive into my chimney. And I'm thinking, oh, they've got to be nesting in there. Like, I don't want to cook a bunch of birds, but I also think they're migratory, so they're probably not in there right now. So Gary came over and poked some stuff through and whatever and got the fire going for Melissa while I was at work yesterday. 
so yeah, we were just huddled around the fire until whatever time we went to bed last night and thinking, man, we're soft. We have domesticated our humanness, you know, like we are just soft, soft animals where we have to, you know, worry about all this sort of stuff. And, but you know what, also another soft animal, um, for my, uh, my, my latitude here, tropical fish. Yeah. I have, I have a tropical fish tank. If you know me personally, you know that I'm really into fish and fishing and I have always had fish tanks all my life and I still do. And I lost a a whole uh, school of fish today. So that's kind of unfortunate. I have survivors. There's a couple survivors in there, but for the most part, it wasn't looking good. And I, I had to go, I can't bury them. The ground's icy. So I just kind of threw them on top in the garden. And I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be some food for some animals out there for a little, for at least half a day. Or food for you if they get, if the garden, if they don't get eaten up. Yeah. Things get bad. You know, we can go out there and have sushi, you know, they'll still be good. They're frozen. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that that's this today had some casualties in the family and some uh, some electronic emergencies and whatever else. And but I don't know. We're through the worst of it. If you can hear me now, that means we have power. So we're looking good. Pipes are frozen. Looking forward to a shower. I'll tell you that. I'll bet. Well, speaking of soft animals, our guest today. Oh, and tropical fish, by the way, and tropical fish. Yeah, is uh, Mark Le Magnifique de Worth. So yeah, Mark, I lo- I lost a whole a whole herd of fish. Although I know they travel in schools, but I'm not a teacher anymore. So, um, yeah, these things called roseline sharks. You know what those are? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with them. Sahedra denisoni or something denisoni. Yeah, lost a whole flock of those things. Unfortunately, they're sensitive to cold water because they they typically occur south of the equator. So obviously, they they really like very high temperatures usually about the mid 80s on those yeah and then these and that definitely was not the case in my house last night <laughs> it was cold <laughs> yeah yeah they're sensitive they can't get enough oxygen flow through their gills when at the lower temperatures and you know that's something i've always appreciated about you once i learned it i knew you probably for years before i knew you were a tropical fish hobbyist um and that's kind of semi-professional as well I used to do those fish trade shows and all that stuff yeah yeah i used to do a big convention for uh, i did it for 25 years and uh, oh that's right and i remember years like when i first got into bigfoot i would bring people in like Ray Crow and Larry Lund and Perez and Coleman and i'd force them to go to the fish club meeting before we head down to the bigfoot conference <laughs> and, uh, so they would actually attend these meetings and learn about stuff. It was kind of funny. Yeah, force them, make them earn it. You know, exactly. Come to Ohio for the Bigfoot, but you got to go through the fish. Yeah, you've got you got a lot of interests as well, and we'll get into some of that while we're talking here. But obviously, most of our talk will be about Bigfoot because that's what most of our listeners want to hear about. Um, you, of course, you're out in Ohio. You're one of the main players out in Ohio. And um, one of the things that I, I've, I've always appreciated about you is not not necessarily just your geographic location, um, but also your temporal location. Because you, uh, even though you're about our age, you know, you're, you are our age, you were doing it, I think, earlier than, than I know than I was. I don't know about Bobo. But you kind of have bridged that gap between a couple generations of Bigfooters? Because you just mentioned a minute ago, Larry Lund and Dan Perez and Ray Crow and all these people, um, some of which are still around, some of which have passed on, like Ray Crow. And um, you knew you knew DeHinden. You've known, you stayed at John Green's house. You, you were involved in that first and generation one and generation 1.5 as well. Is, is, are those people what got you into Bigfoot? Or did you have an experience and then that happened? 
I think more than more than anything, it was when you went to look for information on the Bigfoot subject, especially like in in middle school and high school. You know, the names that kept that kept coming up were the Greens, the DeHindens, the Burns, and Grover Krantz, and people like that. And uh, so I kind of gravitated toward reading every bit of information I could I could find on the subject, which back then was sparse at best. But the information was just truly amazing, and uh, it just really, you know, made me think harder and harder into the the, the subject or the idea that 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 Bigfoots not only exist, but they could actually be in Ohio. And what year was this, by the way? What uh, well, I mean, I my first interest was in nineteen. I was in fourth grade. Um, I was every Friday we would go over to my grandparents' house and my grandfather and I would sit there in the TV room as we called it and w- always watched a certain group of shows like uh, if I don't know if you guys remember like Chico and the Man, the Rockford Files, um, you know the Jeffersons things like that. Well, on Friday night Leonard Nimoy always came on with that in search of, and they were talking about Bigfoot in North America and Canada. And I just remember I was, I would always sit on my grandfather's lap when we watched the shows. And I remember looking at him. I'm like, hey, Gramps. Uh, in fourth grade? Yes. He was a very small child. Yeah, well, my <laughs> grandfather was an awesome dude. So. But he was also very large. Yes, he was 6'4", <laughs> exactly. And, uh, but anyways, to make a long story short, uh, you know, I asked my grandfather, I said, grandfather, Grandpa, does Bigfoot? Would there be Bigfoots in Ohio? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I think so. He goes, I've I've read stories in the local newspapers like the Cleveland Press and the Akron Beacon Journal and the Canton Repository about Bigfoot sightings in the state. So, of course, I got super excited. And, you know, that following Monday, I went to my Hilliard Elementary School and uh, went to our library hour. And in there, I asked the librarian, I said, hey, do you have any books on Indian legends or myth folklore? Because I was afraid to say the Bigfoot word, you know, because it was kind of a weird word to say. And uh, she showed me a area of books and I noticed the word Loch Ness Monster. So I looked around and lo and behold, I see this green covered hardbound book that said Sasquatch on the side. And I pulled it out and it was Sasquatch Apes Among Us by John Green. And I remember flicking to that back of that cover with that big map of North America on it. And lo and behold, it said Ohio, 17 sightings. And of course, I freaked out. I checked it out and read it cover to cover and was hooked ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Who can blame you? I mean, just because, you know, being in the Midwesty area, Ohio is considered the Midwest or is it the East Coast? I don't know. There's it's a line considered the, mid, the edge of the Midwest and the Northeast. Okay. Okay. Because uh, I have debates with Melissa about that because she's from Pennsylvania. Um yeah, back there and you're hearing about these mysteries in the Pacific Northwest because that's where the authors lived at the time. You, I think a lot of people got kind of left out of the early part of this phenomenon in their lives, you know, or the early part of their lives in this phenomenon because, oh, it's just a Pacific Northwest thing. I even hear that today in the museum. People come in, I just thought this was the Pacific Northwest, but you have stuff from Kentucky and Ohio and West Virginia. So, yeah. Totally. I, I actually uh, had to almost debate someone two days ago who was from West Virginia, um, saying, oh, "Well, too bad they're not in West Virginia." And I said, "Oh man, too bad. You just know, yeah, too bad you don't know about it because they're all over the place in West Virginia." Yeah. So John Green, that that one book probably did more for opening the subject um, all across the nation and continent than any any other single book. 
Yeah, most most definitely. You know, John was such an elegant man and an el- and a phenomenal writer to t- to top it off. So when you read his book, even for a fourth grader, you it just was like taking a hot knife going through butter. You just it was you didn't want to put the book book down because of his storytelling ability and his you know talking about all the 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 data that was collected by then was just truly amazing. To be honest with you. Speaking of books, you you got quite the book collection because I've bought some of my best rare books off of you. You got and you got all kinds of knickknacks and curios from the Bigfoot scene from going over decades. Lots, so so much I don't even know. I find new I find new stuff all the time when I go through my my storage totes at my father's and my father's place. I find magazines. I find I find so many things that I didn't know I had. I actually, matter of fact, the other day I was flicking through the through a bucket and I open up a few things and there's an old Krantz book. I open it up. I'm looking. And it says, "Oh, it's oh my god, it's signed by Grover." Didn't even realize. Wow. And Grover was not one who signed a lot of books either. Just for the record, he wasn't. I don't have any. I don't have any autograph by Krantz that, that I'm aware of. I had one. I ruined it. Oh man, that sucks. Yeah, kept it, kept it in my car for too long and just got thrashed. Yeah, well, Grover was was one of those guys that you know I was real fortunate to be able to go visit him at Washington State on a couple of occasions, and uh, um, he was a definite and interesting individual. But I will have to say that for a scientist, you know, he took every punch thrown at him and just kept getting back up, and you got to give him credit for that. Oh yeah. Yeah, you worked for United Airlines, so you got to fly around the country. That's how you got to go visit everyone, right? Yeah, yeah, it was U.S. Air at the time, and yeah, like when I first started coming out west to like the the uh, the big Sasquatch symposiums in B.C. and everything, I you know I'd fly out for free and usually fly into Seattle or Portland and then just drive up and uh, go stay with the Greens, go hang with you know Peter or Larry Lund or DeHinden or whoever, and and uh, you know let's just say that one thing I learned that's consistent to this day is that there's a lot of animosity and jealousy in the Bigfoot community. Yeah. It, it, it has absolutely never changed. And and I always thought to myself, I remember talking with John saying, hey, John, wouldn't it be great if like everyone in the community got back together and, and formed that alliance you guys once had and tried to solve this mystery? And he looked at me straight as if he goes, I'd never get back with so-and-so and so-and-so. Never, ever, ever. Just like that. I was like, wow. Yeah, it's just the same thing today. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you, you get neck deep in that because you run the world famous, largest, uh, oldest running Bigfoot conference, the Ohio Bigfoot conference. So you're, you're smacked out in the middle of all that kind of stuff. Oh, yes, 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 most definitely. And, uh, but you know what? I mean, I think the Ohio Bigfoot Conference is a good thing because I, I really think it, it just, uh, it's just such a useful tool in terms of educating people for one, and two, getting all those skeptics into at least hear, you know, some of the evidence and some of the stories around the phenomenon so they can make a better, uh, should I say, uh, judgment or better assumption of Bigfoot's real or not, let's say. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I love, first of all, I love your gig. Uh, I've been lucky enough to do it a lot of times over the last decade. And I thank you so much for inviting me back every year. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite jobs to do. I've made a lot of good friends in Ohio and it's a really big one and it's really well attended. And one, one of the things I, I think is uh, fantastic is that you're not trying to make it bigger. 
you're totally, it seems you're pretty content on what you have and you just go forward. You know how many people are going to come. You know how many people you can seat. You know how big the venue is. You know how many vendors you can have, how many speakers. You, you've got it dialed in. And I think that uh, practice makes perfect and your your gig has achieved that. And any uh, improvements or differences like you know the Sunday afternoon Q&A stuff that you've been doing the last couple of years is just another cherry on top of the cake. You know, It's just a, another great presentation of an event um, over a weekend. And it, it, what I thought couldn't get better gets just a tiny bit better every year or two. And so congratulations on that. I appreciate that. But, you know, it's because of folks like you, you know, I mean, all th- you know, pretty much, you know, you and Bobo and even Matt Pruitt and all the people that have, you know, obviously said, hey, yeah, I'd love to come speak and stuff. And, you know, once again, I, I love the fact that you guys are educational and uh, especially for that next generation of Bigfooters and you guys have positive attitudes and and which is something we need a lot more of. And, uh, and then also, you know, with the venue itself, it's like, you know, with Salt Fork, that's, that's a turnkey operation, basically. I mean, why change something that's that easy to do? And I, and I really do. It, it is easy to do. It's, you could, I could do it I, technically in my sleep, really. And if I wanted to, I could sit there and people have said, well, why don't you do a two full day event where you have the speakers speak all day Saturday and then all day Sunday and have the vendors set up for all these days. And the first thing I say is, is this, and it's a real simple answer. I said, I invite these people to come out and speak. They're taking time from their lives to come out. They're being away from their families and friends and whatever. I said, if I'm going to sit there and bring them in and just have them worked, you know, 48 hours straight. You know, for me, that's not doing a benefit for them. I mean, they're going to be exhausted. They're going to, you know, it's it's too much if you ask me. One day's plenty. Doing that little side event on Sunday is a nice little short thing to do. It's fun for the people that couldn't get regular tickets. And, uh, you know, it's like I say, why why fix something that's not broken? Right. And you didn't, you didn't start the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. It's been going on before you even were uh, running it. Yes, Don Keating uh, started it in the 1989, I believe, and it was just more of a way to get people to come to Newcomer's Town and tell about their uh, possible Bigfoot reports that were the rumors that were going around that area. And it wasn't until like roughly 94, 95 that I started to get involved with the event with Don and having my knowledge of the travel industry. I'm like, hey, Don, I said, I know you're inviting these people in, these local people. I said, why don't why don't we fly a few people in? And he's like, well, we don't have any money to do it. I said, well, I work for an airline. I got, I used to get the, what they called buddy passes back in the day. And so I would bring Melderman in or Bendernagel in or Perez in, Larry Lund, Ray Crow. We can go on and on the different names. And when you start bringing in those, like Cliff said, those speakers that you only read their books and you knew about them. So that brought a whole new wave of people to the event. And eventually the event in Newcomer's Town was getting so large. Every time we would move it to a bigger school or a bigger auditorium, it just got larger and larger. And then Salt Fork caught wind of it. And they eventually reached out to Don and said, hey, we'd love you to have this event. And Don was kind of hesitant on it because he didn't want want to move it from Newcomer's Town. But the fact is, and, and I'm sure Don would admit this today, is that Newcomer's Town didn't do a lot for him in terms of hosting this big event in the town. So Don finally just decided, you know, he Salt Fork's willing to do these things for me. Why don't I just move it there? And of course, you know, you see what's happened. It, it has evolved over the years. And then Don retired from doing the event, had me take it, take it over because he knows I'll do a good job. 
And, uh, and from there with all my travel skills and, and doing conference skills that I did with fish club for 25 years, um, you know, I just basically took the event and just implemented a lot of things I, I learned in the big in doing in the fish conventions and, uh, and you know, the rest is taking care of itself. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. It's going to be happening again this year. May 6th. May 6th. Cliff Berrickman will be there too. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know if I'm going to go then because that guy. Well, I'm not going. (laughs) Yeah, well, we know that. (laughs) Have you announced any other speakers yet? Um, Renee Holland is coming back. Uh, Renee, Renee was very popular with the, with the people, you know, being a first timer, she's coming back. I have, uh, actually David Bacara is speaking for the first time. Who's the owner and operator of Expedition Bigfoot Museum in Georgia. And, uh, David is just an amazing human being. Uh, just his museum is amazing. And, uh, and he's just a wealth of information because he gets so many people coming up through that part of the country that stops at his museum. And you know what they talk to him about their Bigfoot report, their Bigfoot sightings. And, uh, people love to hear about reports and about sightings. So I think David will do, it's going to do a fantastic job. And, and, uh, and then, and then we have Adam Davies coming back. You know, he was supposed to speak this coming year and ended up having to speak last year. Cause when, remember when Lauren canceled because of, you know, travel restrictions or something, and so Adam was graciously to fill in. And then I have a couple more that I'm going to be announcing soon. I'm just going to wait till after the new year to announce them. And uh, so it's going to be a really well-versed lineup. When did tickets go on sale? First wave of tickets, which was like 80% of them, went on sale on the first Saturday in December. And they sold out like in, I don't know, it must have been six or seven minutes. And then, then the last 20%, because I always wait till after the new year to have just a small amount available, especially for people that don't have a lot of money and they, and, and they want to go, but because of the holidays, they're, they're kind of spending all their money during, you know, for the family. So I do a small sale in January. That will be the January 3rd, I believe it is, or 2nd, January 2nd. I believe it's a Tuesday. I think this podcast will go out the day before, so good timing. Well, yeah, yeah, there you go. And like I said, what the thing that excites me more than anything is new people being able to get tickets. We and just I just like to see this ever, should I say, influx of new people with old people, new people with old people, because it really forms a a, a much larger, broader community. Now, for, for people who've never been to the Ohio conference, there's an aspect here that you may not be, um, fully understand: is that the, what, the, these tickets that we're talking about are basically to get in the same room with the speakers and listen to their talks. Um, but there's a whole vending area that is packed with hundreds of people that you, that are is totally free. That's that's the case, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, yeah, it's thousands of people actually. Um, we we had 55 vendors last year, and what the amazing thing was that when the the main ticket holders that are in the room seeing the speakers like i had so many vendors made the comment to me they're like is the speaker actually going right now i'm like yeah cliff's in there talking they said this whole place is still full so people were just coming and coming in and out for the whole weekend and we're going to even do a better job this year on promoting the actual as i call it the event within the event the 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 big uh, vending area the three floors is all free and open to the public 
And you can talk to the speaker because all the speakers are at their tables. You can go up and still meet the speakers and buy a shirt or a hat or whatever. So Exactly. And, and of course, that's one thing I definitely say is that all the speakers are accessible when they're not speaking. And, uh, you know, and then, like I say, then Salt Fork, we got the we got the great idea of doing some food trucks outside. So this year we're going to have five food trucks outside so people can come and go buy food. Dude, that's what you need. That was my biggest complaint was the food there was. So if you got food trucks, that's that's like. Man, that's a, you got the winning combination now. Yeah, I, I know this this year we're having. I know we're having uh, uh, this pizza place that came last year. It was phenomenal. There, uh, there's a barbecue place. There's going to be a Mexican this year. That like this taco truck that's real well known in this part of Ohio. And uh, there's going to be like your typical fair foods one. I mean, so they're going to they guaranteed me at least five trucks this year because last year we only had three. And I am not kidding you. Those lines were so long, and they and they actually sold out of food. That's how much food they sold. That, that's a huge advance, you know, as far as the Ohio Bigfoot Conference goes. So thank you for that, Mark. Oh, sure. Is there any rooms available or cabins to live available to rent for the conference? Yeah, yeah. Um, for the people that were got VIP tickets already on the first wave, they already got their accessibility to lodging to book their rooms and and cabins. And then once the second small wave sells out on that on December second, they will get access for a week to book their rooms or cabins. And then eventually, it's the second week of December, all the other rooms and cabins become open to anyone. And uh, to be honest with you, we sell out every year. We we have every single lodge room, every cabin in the entire park, and we sell out a hundred percent of them. And then even the campground, it has three hundred and thirty sites, and that's available to book any time. That is completely full for the Bigfoot Conference Weekend, and it's usually ninety percent Bigfoot people. Yeah, for people that haven't been, since most people listen to this have never been, Salt Fork has one of those. Big lodges like in the middle of the park. What's the park like? Twenty, thirty thousand something acres. It's yeah, Salt Fork is like thirty-two thousand acres. Yeah, it's beautiful and it's got a couple hundred rooms in it. So it's just it's like a giant convention hall of only Bigfooters. There's no one else in there besides Bigfooters. It's it's pretty it's pretty crazy. Yeah, well, no, and it's exactly and and like Cliff was saying, like I've never tried to like make the event bigger. Well, Cliff, when you have the perfect venue, which is the Salt Fork Lodge, there's no reason to move. And I've heard Bigfoot's in that park. I mean, and people see them all the time. I mean, it's 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 nuts. Like you think with all the people whooping and knocking and hollering there every weekend of the year, just about that the squatches wouldn't respond. They still respond. It's 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 unique. Well, and I I think it's because that Salt Fork area right through there through that lake, there it's just a natural travel way for them to go from from Southern Ohio up to like into Columbiana County and then going east to Egypt Valley and then even going west over into Coshocton and southeast into other parts of Ohio. So it's kind of like their little highway hub, I would call it, because you know you'll go a few years not hear a one report and then all of a sudden in two weeks you'll have five sightings. I mean, so, you know, every so often you'll get them where you get a whole group of ones getting seen or a couple of them are being seen and then it goes quiet. But, but yeah. And, you know, and like you guys said, there's so many squatchers down there. It's hard to decipher what is what, but uh, it's still fun though. Yeah. Last year on that Sunday, I think it was a Sunday, um, two people claimed to have seen one the, the, the day before. Um, you know, and I, I was luckily, I was, I was in the area. I was, uh, I was obviously speaking there, but I did a little thing with Seth Breedlove the, for the next week or whatever. So I had my squatching gear with me, went out, um, 
to a spot not too far from where the lodge was, like literally around the corner. Uh, I don't remember the name, but I'm sure you do, Mark. Um, and we heard knocks. We heard knocks out there. So, I mean, and the, and the convention is going on and there's a Sasquatch like a half mile away. It's kind of a weird situation, but it's that kind of place. Well, I guess when you can't get tickets, you just got to stay in the woods and wait it out. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, even a, even a Sasquatch can't get tickets to this thing. Well, you know, I, I, I won't do that open invite just yet for him or her. Depending on which one it is, but uh, but no, I mean that's interesting, and you know, and, I, and over the years, I'm just to the point where when people come up and tell me they had a sighting, yeah, it's exciting and everything, but it's like, hey, can you go to the Browns? Can you go talk to Cliff? Go talk to so and so about it. Let them because I don't have the time what during that weekend to do anything other than just make sure that the event is running smoothly and people are having a good time. And you and you're very successful in both those things, so. But you know, we've been talked a lot about the event, obviously, and everything. But you know, we, you have been bigfooting for a long time, and you've had uh, more than your fair share of field experiences. Um, people do love to hear about these things. So, would you mind sharing some of your early experiences, um, or maybe your sighting, or whatever you feel like talking about? Well, I think I think the one that really, to me, that just really sold me on Bigfoot in Ohio was in 1989. It was in the summer of '89. My girlfriend at the time had invited me to her family reunion. Well, I, of course, I lived up in the greater Cleveland area. And, uh, and of course, Bigfoot was one of my passions. But back then, especially in the mid-80s, there wasn't a lot of avenues to get a lot of data or information on alleged Bigfoot reports unless they came into the local newspaper. And if you were lucky enough to catch it. And maybe find the witness that that would be about the only thing. So to make to, to, so to make the story go on, uh, so she invited me to this family reunion. She said it was in a town called Tippecanoe, and I'm like, where the hell's Tippecanoe? She goes, oh, down by Uricksville, and of course, well, where the hell's Uricksville? And then, well, to make a long story short, it's south of Canton, Ohio. So we got in the car and she drove and we went to start going down 77 south. And lo and behold, we come up on New Philadelphia, and I just remember sitting there in the car. And I'm looking around at all these hills covered with forests. And I was like, wow, I never knew Ohio had this kind of terrain. And so we continued down the, the 250 corridor into like Midvale and Denison and Uricksville. And of course, my all of a sudden, my Bigfoot meter turned on. And I was, I've never, even though I didn't say anything to her, I just kept thinking to myself, oh my gosh, there could be Bigfoots down here. And so we eventually get on State Route 800 and head down to Tippecanoe to where her aunt and uncle's farm was. And when you pulled down this driveway, and it was just a gravel driveway off of State Route 800, you couldn't even see the house. It was so far back. And it was like this property that sat in this big grassy bowl. And there was a couple big old barn structures to the left that you could see with about 25 head of black Angus cow. So we go down the dirt driveway and go all the way around this tree line. And then to the right is where the house sat. Big old farmhouse built in the 1800s, everything like that. So, you know, Bob was real nice, her uncle Bob. And he's like, hey, come on out to the barn. I'll show you like my my cows and stuff like that. So as we were out in the barn the whole time, what do you think I was thinking about? I'm thinking about Bigfoot. So I'm thinking to myself, well, what? how do I ask this guy about any strange, any Bigfoot reports without sounding weird and kooky and everything? So I said, hey, Bob, uh, any stories of any weird animals around here? And he looked over, he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, like anything unusual, out of place. He goes, well, we get our shares of 
panthers and bobcats and cougars and bears and things like that. He goes, matter of fact, the neighbors saw a bear walk across State Route 800. And I'm like, oh, interesting. I didn't say a freaking word to him. So as we go in to have supper, you know, Aunt Betty, we sit at the table and Aunt Betty's his wife and she's like, looks over and she goes, oh, Mark, I heard Bob told you about the neighbor seeing the bear walk across the road. I'm like, yeah, that's an interesting story. And, and she goes, do you want to meet him? I go, what do you mean? She goes, do you want to meet the neighbor who saw it? I'm like, well, yeah. So the next morning we get in the car and we zip down 800. I mean, and it's on the opposite side of where the, the Dunlap farm was. That was their farm. And this, you know, pulled in this dirt driveway and there was a old beat up barn. This guy comes out. He was a blacksmith on the weekends. And she goes, oh, this is my niece's boyfriend. He wants to talk to you about the bear you saw. And he goes, yeah, come on back. Walk back in the blacksmith barn with him. And he's talking and he goes, well, he goes, I work at the brick plant in, I think it was Eurexville. And he goes, and I didn't get off till midnight. So every night I would come down 800 past the Dunlap farm and over to my place. And he goes, one night I was driving and at the bend of the road where the creek goes underneath the road, he goes, there was a bear standing on the left side of the road. So I hit my bright lights on it. And he goes, the bear did something so amazing. I go, well, what did it do? He goes, it stepped across the road in three steps. And when it got to the metal guardrail, it just stepped over it into the creek. He goes, I never knew a bear could do that. And I just said, oh, well, that's awesome. That's, that's an amazing story. Didn't say a word. He, I thanked him for my time. We walked back out to the car. I got in and Betty just waited in the car. So she said goodbye and we started backing out of the driveway. And then all of a sudden I'm just sitting there because I knew what he saw, but I'm sitting there just pondering. And Betty, look, I was staring at me and I looked over and I said, yes. And she goes, what do you really think he saw? And I said, what do you think he saw? She said, he saw Bigfoot, didn't he? I said, bingo, you said it. And because uh, I never said the word, but that was most definitely a Bigfoot sighting. This guy just didn't know what a Bigfoot was. Uh, how old were you when this happened? Oh, in 89? Who? 20? Okay. That was 33 years ago. Was that the first witness you'd ever spoken to? That was the first witness I've ever spoken to. And here's the funny thing. After Betty, you know, conferred it was a Bigfoot, because I let her say it first, she goes, there's a guy in Newcomerstown that does Bigfoot meetings. And we drove from Tippecanoe through the foothills of, of like the Alleghenies into Newcomerstown through these foothills. And when we came into Newcomerstown, I'm like, how are you going to find this guy's phone number? She goes, watch. And she pulls into the local library. In a few minutes, she walks out with a piece of paper and there was a pay phone there. And we called Don on the phone. And Don went to his voice message. So she goes, well, leave my phone number and he can call back later. So I left him a message and said, this is where I'm staying. Could you call after dinner time? And he did call me that night. And he's telling me for 30, 40 minutes straight about all these alleged Bigfoot reports. And I was just blown away. And I told him, I said, oh, I'd love to you know, find out more. So I signed up for, he had like a newsletter, if you guys remember. So I signed up for his newsletter and stuff. And, and, it, but, and it was kind of weird. I was super excited, but in the same breath, when I went back home, being 100 and th say 25 miles away, I didn't have the time to always drive down through there. So I tried to research up by me in Northeast Ohio by utilizing some of the newspaper sources and stuff. And I would get reports here and there, but just not a ton. And then, it would, then when I went to the first Bigfoot event that Don had, like in 94 or 95, um, that's when I got super involved with the field investigations throughout the whole state. 
Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. And how did you reach out to other people at that time? Because this is pre-internet. Yeah, pre-internet. Well, my biggest thing was always reaching out to the sheriff's departments and the police departments. Because a lot of times when there was a Bigfoot setting, they'd be in the local newspapers and you'd find out who to contact. And a lot of times the police would actually release, let you see the report. And, uh, and a lot of times get permission from the witness who typically would want to talk about it because the police would typically just say, well, it was a prowler, it was a bear, it was a person in a suit, where these people were not happy about that because of what their experience entailed. And uh, so that's how I initially was starting to get reports was through that avenue. But as you guys know, the problem with that is by the time you get a good report, it's three months old. And so in terms of the physical evidence being there, it's just not available, which was a very frustrating thing. Right. So what have you learned over all these years? Like, Have you seen patterns develop? And you talked about travel corridors and that sort of thing. And do you get any idea of what the population of the squatches might be in Ohio? Well, I mean, one thing I know for sure is this, is that they're throughout the entire state. Ohio has so much water flow, north and south drainage going to the Lake Erie into the Ohio River. We have tons of large rivers. Anytime there's reports, it's associated with waterways. Um, Two, if you take like your finger and put it on Cleveland and just go down to Mansfield, Columbus, over to Cincinnati, go anywhere east of there, you probably can have some some pockets of some serious activity because that's like like the beginning of like the where it becomes non-glaciated unglaciated where it starts getting into those rolling hills foothills a lot more forest cover tons of water um it seems like that little part of the state is kind of where it's a year-round thing where northwest ohio being flat and farmland is it's very seasonal there are reports there, not a lot, but there's a very small population base there, too, in the same breast. So when you don't have people, the likelihood of having any legitimate or good reports is not not high at all. Um, but, uh, but like I say, I think we have something to offer that a lot of states don't offer, and that's plenty of water, huge deer population, and lack of natural predators. Yeah, because there aren't really, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are some, there aren't really mountain lions there for the most part, and bears are very rare, I think, for most of the state. I've often heard that uh, Ohio might be one of these places where there's actually more Sasquatches than bears. I would agree. I would agree for sh- for sure on that statement. Um, there are bears in certain parts of the state, but they seem to come into Ohio, feed and go back into PA or West Virginia. Um, the, the Bigfoot population is definitely on top here. Um, there has to be, I mean, because they have to be reproducing successfully. There has to be at least five or six family groups in the state, starting in Northeast Ohio, making all the way down of Southeast of Cincinnati. And, uh, and, and they're definitely separated by different things. If it's either highways, if it's major water arteries, things like that. And, uh, because from, from what we've seen in terms of, especially like the audio recordings throughout the state. Yeah, there's some big males yelling away, but there's also big males yelling in a different pattern or a different sound. You know, they sound totally different. So we know that there's more than just one big alpha male. Um, and there's just uh, there's just an abundance of food in our state. And, and I mean, we do have a very highly productive 
you know, forest in our state. We have lots of oaks, lots of hickories, and those are good mass producing trees. And when I say mass, that puts food on the forest floor. And when you have food on the forest floor, all your deer, your turkey, all your game are going to be feeding on that. Well, the Bigfoots are going to feed on that too, but they're also going to be feeding on the game. So kind of a win-win. So you think there's maybe only as few as four or five family groups in the whole state? When I say groups, Bobo, I'm talking, I think our groups in Ohio probably are sitting there, you know, anywhere from, you know, six to 12 individuals per group. And it could be more. I mean, see, we just don't know enough is the problem. We know they're reproducing. We know there's alpha males. We know that they're yelling back and forth. We know they're wood knocking. It's weird, like in extreme Southern Ohio, they, they like to kind of whoop and wood knock where in like central Ohio, they're more that real deep, long yell. And then in Northeast Ohio, they're more wood knockers and kind of like whoopers too. So it's weird. It, it's, there's really not a lot of consistency, but, but I mean, but if you figure five, six groups, Bobo, and just say they average 10 per group, that's 60 individuals. And you know, they're coming and going from across the Ohio river into Kentucky, back into Ohio, over to Indiana, into Pennsylvania. You think they travel that far? Oh, most definitely. The big ones, for sure. The big ones, I think, have a lot bigger bigger uh, areas than we could ever imagine because there's recordings down in the, in the southern part of the state that the Browns have been getting that uh, Charlie Raymond in Kentucky's getting recordings down in, the, in like northern Kentucky. It, I mean, I'm sorry, you play the recordings. It's definitely, I am not saying it is for sure, but it sounds like it's the same creature. I mean, real consistent too. And you hear a variation, like you can say, like, okay, like you've identified, you think, like, this is this male, and that's this male, and you're not, you're not at that point yet, are you? No, I'm not. Of course, I'm not that good. I mean, no one's good. We're all just, you know, citizen scientists when it comes to this. But, uh, um, but I'm just going by what I've heard on recordings and stuff, and uh, you know, and I, of course, I could be a hundred percent wrong, and I probably am because, I mean, I. Probably, for the most part, I think most of us are wrong. I said, until this thing is finally solved, I guess we'll get all our, our answers to our questions. I think that's when we start asking the real questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the, well, the, the thing I always wonder is, let's just say in next year one is found and, you know, say it gets run over by a truck. What happens to all the people like, like Cliff and Bobo, let's say, that have put all these years into it? And, uh, you know, what is the science going to do with 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 the people that did all the footwork that's what i'm wondering adios exactly and that's that's how i feel Bobo. that's fine i i, I think that's mostly correct but not 100 percent correct because i think it has to do with what relationships you forged in the meantime of course yeah you'll be relevant still cliff will be relevant i won't well i mean i, I think that to some degree that uh um i i think that my irrelevancy will happen of course but i mean i am pretty good friends with Dr. Meldrum and I have a, a number of PhDs that I correspond with on a fairly regular basis. And, um, and, you know, Leela, for example, um, I was talking to her and she, and she and I agree that this is kind of the kind of field that there will always be a place for amateurs. Um, if you are scientifically minded and you go about things the right way, because uh, again, the scientists are tethered to these um, grants, grant proposals and stuff, and they have to write these things out and spend lab time and publish and do all these things. They just don't have time to go camping. And most of the people who see Sasquatches are frankly campers. Um, so I, I think that there will be a place for people 
um, who are diligent and do the proper kinds of research, even after discovery, because they're going to be leaned upon pretty heavily. Um, just like like Paul Freeman would be a good example. Paul Freeman was the guy in the field largely for Dr. Krantz because Krantz didn't live too far away and Paul was getting uh, results and, and bringing data to Krantz for him to weigh. So that's an example of this sort of thing. Um, where would we be without uh, you know Freeman, for example, uh, increasing the data set of footprints and all that other stuff? Um, so I do think that there will be a place for amateurs if one conducts themselves appropriately um, in the meantime and forges some relationships. Well, of course, everything is based on relationships, and and uh, and that's why it's you know very smart to uh, align yourself with the Dr. Meldrums and some of the other scientists out there, um, because they're going to need data and they're going to need it quick. And uh, and like you said, depending on where the grant money is put, the if I mean they're going to follow the money no matter what. So if it, if it's researching uh, you know a, a type of insect rather than researching Bigfoot, they're going to have to they're going to research the insect. It's where the money goes. This time of year, because um, you, you how cold is it there right now? Oh, today I mean we just had a, a massive front come through with this storm. I think here, let me look at what it says on my weather app right now. Right now I'm sitting here and it is roughly it's negative three, but it feels like negative 14. Well, what do you think these things do in this sort of weather situation? Well, I mean, one thing that I've noticed about Ohio, not just in Bigfoot, but with all my big trees searching and everything like that is Ohio has so many abandoned buildings, silos, lean-tos, barns, old houses. I would not be surprised if these things take advantage of these abandoned shelters. And, And of course, you know, we were heavily strip mined. So there's lots of mine shafts in the state, and there's a lot of mine shafts that are open, that that are in real deep, you know, inaccessible areas. And I wouldn't be surprised if they find places to shelter out in the winter and uh, lay low during the during the daytime, only to become more active at night when they're looking for food and things like that. How much do you guys get snow trucks and that sort of stuff in the winter? You know what? The snow tracks do happen from time to time, but the biggest problem with snow tracks is is that by the time someone can actually physically get down to them, either the wind has blown a lot of the definition of away, or you just can't even get to them because where they're located at. But there have been some 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 good snow track finds. And but here you got to remember this, Bobo, is in Ohio. Once it gets like this, the amount of people that I'll see in the woods on a daily basis when I go on a hike. I mean, like I was laughing last night, I'm out there hiking in this one area and it's like, usually I can see maybe 12 to 15 people on this six mile hike every time I go on it. Yesterday, I didn't see anyone. So all of a sudden, the amount of people in the woods get reduced so much that where if a Bigfoot leaves a nice fresh track line, no one's going to come upon it is the problem. It's just going to get blown away and into, into history, into myth and legend. And how many footprints have been missed so far, man? Oh. I can't imagine. I always tell people, you know, someone's job should be always looking down. Why someone's looking ahead and someone's looking behind, there's always that person should be looking around, just looking down, look down, look down. Well, speaking of looking around, what have you, what have you personally seen out there? Have you seen a Bigfoot or found good tracks? I mean, I've had a, I've had a sighting in 1997 uh, over in Wills Creek in Coshocton County and, uh, um, at broad daylight. And after having that sighting, uh, let's hear it. 
Well, I mean, God, I think I've told that this to you, but, uh, um, well, I was checking out a badger den over an area called Wills Creek Lane Lake the previous, uh, fall hunting season. Uh, some guy had told us at a baiting tackle shop or the check station for deer that, uh, he had seen, uh, a pair of badgers near an old fishing pond that him and his buddy liked to fish at. And, uh, cause he had, he had saw my Bigfoot card I had put up on the bulletin board and he wanted to know if I was into anything other than Bigfoot. And I told him, yeah, anything unusual. He goes, what about badgers? And I'm like, well, yeah. So he goes, well, do you know where Wills Creek is? I'm like, not really. And he goes, well, it's on County road 410. And he goes, he goes, if you go there, you'll see my huge rut from my, from my Jeep tires. Cause he would drive his Jeep as far back off the dirt road as he could to get as close to the pond as possible, then hike the rest of the way in. And so I wrote down all the notes on a little pad of paper and put it in the center council of my Jeep. And, uh, and it wasn't until April 20th of 1997, the following year that, that, uh, I made it down to that location to check out the badger dens. And, uh, and we hiked way back into this area, this old strip mine and, uh, perfectly, you know, sunny spring day, nothing unusual. And we got back to, to the coal pile. The guy mentioned where the den was and we found what was some kind of den, but there were no badgers in it. There was indicators of some kind of omnivore living it at one time. Cause there was a lot of bones and hair from stuff it was eating. And, uh, and that was that. And then on the way back, you know, we started, something started moving around above us on the strip mine. And before you know it, we were playing cat and mouse and it finally got to a point where, uh, where, uh, you know, I told the other guy who was with me, I'm like, you know, go ahead and go ahead. I'll wait. I'll give you about a five, six minute head start. We'll kind of split up and we'll see. Cause we, we assumed we had spooked up a whole bunch of white tailed deer cause they were the sound above us sounded like a bunch of deer moving around. And, uh, so we split up and I was at the back end of the, of, of the, of the way out, let's just say. And, uh, so I just sat there, you know, five, six, seven minutes and I stood up and started walking out again, following the old beat up strip mine trail. And lo and behold, all this movement again above me. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, some, this, something isn't right here. Every time I stop, it stops. Every time I go, it goes. And then I was starting to get worried that it was a big cougar because there were rumors there was a big cat down there at the time. And of course, I don't have a gun. Only thing I had was a can of bear mace. And uh, so I started kind of walking. And as I would walk, I'd be looking up to my left on the higher tier above me to see if I could see anything. But I couldn't. But I could definitely hear stuff. And then when I'd stop, it would stop. I'd go, it would go. And, you know, eventually it got to a point where the all the strip mine tears we're contouring down a decline toward the old dirt road on County Road 410. And it was to that point where I had to make a decision when I started going down the decline, do I run like hell and get out of there? Or do I, you know, just keep listening? Well, when I got to that point, I made, I started hiking down the decline and I just decided to sit down on my rear end and listen. And when I got to the point, there were some pines growing to the left side of this little trail I was on. And I sat by the pines and listened. And sure as heck, I would have expected to hear all this noise. And I didn't hear a single thing. And I'm like, what the heck? What just happened? And so I was getting ready to like stand up and look. And lo and behold, I hear plain as day, scrunch, crunch, crunch right over the top of me. And I was like, oh man. And I was like freaking thinking, and you know, I know what you're thinking, but actually what I thought it was, was a person. 
And the reason why I thought that was because down in that part of the state, I had some run-ins before with people protecting pot crops. And they're usually like, there's always someone armed protecting the crop, let's say. And uh, so I slowly decide to stand up and look over the tops of the of these these pines. And I look up expecting to see a person. There's nothing there. And I'm like, what the hell? There was someone right there. So I looked down toward where my Jeep would have been parked on the dirt road. And it was roughly like 450 yards down to the, to the road. And then I looked back to the where I came from, didn't see anything. So then I started panning back to the right in that area. And I noticed on the side of the tier of the strip mine, there was this black thing squatted down in the sunlight. And I'm looking at this thing like saying to myself, oh my God, it's a black bear. So I go to take my pack off. I had a brand new cam- VHSC Panasonic camcorder. And I, with, with the idea, I take my pack off and get this camera out. So I go to take my pack off. It makes all sorts of noise. It was one of those big metal frame packs. Do you remember those like from backpacking? And so it made a lot of noise. And so when I flip it down, this thing goes from the squatted position with its back toward me, starts standing up. And I'm expecting to see a snout and ears like a bear. And lo and behold, when it turns sideways, the sun's hitting it. I see the ear on the side of its head like a person. So it turns and looks at me. I almost go back so far. There was another tier of the strip mine behind me. I almost fell down that. And I got my composure. And I looked at it. It looked at me. Its mouth kind of opened up somewhat like, doe like what are you doing there basically i was the impression i got and uh, so i flip my bag down and i go to reach for my camcorder as soon as i made the reaching mode it just turns and walks up the next tier of the strip mine and when it walked up i noticed a branch of the tree hit it right on the top of its head and was shaking violently as it walked through and i don't know how i did this but i just grabbed the camcorder grabbed the pack dragged it up to where it was standing dropped the pack and then i went up the next tier of the strip mine above that after it and i got my camera to start filming and as i was filming i could see where it was going but I, the only way reason I could see where it was going is because the tops of the trees were moving where it was going through. So I started filming in that direction, and I was filming and shaking so bad. I looked over at my arm. It looked like, I mean, my arm was like, like almost like, like as you would say, Bobo, like an earthquake. My arm was shaking that violently. I had to stop what I was doing and try to regain my composure. So I finally got the thing recording. I was looking in the area where it was going, and this at this point, the whole strip mine made a sharp left-hand turn. The whole contour of it did. So I was standing right on that corner point of it. And as I was filming, all of a sudden to my left, I hear what's the only thing I can explain is take a deep freezer full of meat and drop it down a hillside. Something was coming right down at me. And I pan my camera to the left, freaking out, and uh, start filming in that area. And there's something in the woods there looking around the tree at me. And, uh, and I literally is freaking out. And the guy that went down to the road, he comes back up the trail. And all of a sudden, as I'm freaking out, I hear my name being called. So I realized it was this other guy. So I yelled down to him, I'm up here. He comes up, and when he comes up the hill and gets to where I stand, he looks at me and he goes, "What did you just see? A ghost?" And I'm just like, "Oh, the b- 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 Bigfoot!" He's like, "What?" And I'm pointing up like where something is. I go, "There's something right up, and you could hear it moving." 
And uh, I was shaking so bad that, I mean, he even goes to me. I remember what he said. He goes, what do you want to do? I said, I just want to go home. I was that upset. And I literally drove from Coshocton, Wills Creek, all the way back to Strongsville, Ohio. And I don't, to this day, I don't remember the drive. I don't remember anything about it. You remember the details, what it looked like? Oh, most definitely. Very clean. Very, the hair was very shiny and uniformed. It's facial features. For example, the hair feathered up to the cheeks like a man with a beard, but the cheek colors was kind of a, I would call it like a tannish brown. And uh, then the hair was very, very dark jet black. Um, one thing that really stood out to me since I'm a birder too, you know, I'm into like feeding backyard birds. Uh, do you guys know what European starlings are? Yeah. Okay. And you know, like they're a real black, black bird. And then when they get sunlight on them, they kind of get like a blue iridescent to them. Yeah. Well, the, when the sun was hitting this thing's hair, it actually had a little blue hue to it, which was like quite interesting. Um, its head, for example, like your typical description, it sat so deep in the shoulders you could not see a neck. Um, when it moved, it moved like almost like it was floating, though it wasn't floating. It went up the hill like the hill wasn't even there, and it just seemed so fluid and so smooth when it did it. Um, one thing that really stood out to me was the, the ass cheek. Like when it turned its contour, its ass was just huge, like the biggest bodybuilder ever, but just times ten. This thing was these. This thing was really big, and uh, and do you re- remember I I mentioned about it hit its head off the branch of the tree? Well, when I left, I had to go get my pack, so I did one thing of common sense that day. I took orange blaze tape, tied it around that tree, and got the hell out of there. Well, a week later, ten of us came back to the site. So in Ohio, what do you think the foliage went from April 20th to April 27th? It went from being somewhat green to full foliage. And if it wasn't for that tape and having 10 people, we would not have found the exact spot, but we did. And so that when we measured from where it was standing up to the top of the branch, that was eight foot 11 off the ground and the branch hit it on the forehead. Oh, so it was huge. And then another aspect of it that really caught me was that land is owned by the Muskingum Watershed District, which is the Corps of Engineers. And I called them the, the next day on a Monday. And I called them and I said, hey, I was hiking in Wills Creek on Sunday and I saw a large ape. And you know what his response was? What? Which one? <laughs> and I said, excuse me? He goes, yeah, which one, the black one or the brownish red one? Uh, black one? Oh, did it try to hurt you? No. Oh, it never does. I go, do you keep like reports on this? He goes, oh, no. But he goes, I've been working there over 25 years, and you're probably the 25th, 25, 25 or 30th person to call and report the same thing. So they've known for a long time, and, you, and they don't care. What was the build on it? Oh, all I can say is this, like an anvil, its shoulders were so wide, it made its waist look skinny, but its waist was not skinny. It was probably four and a half foot wide at the shoulders. Did you spend any time looking for footprints? 
of course, you know, in the, in the excitement of everything we did kind of look, but I, I was so upset. And the person that was with me could tell that how scared I was white as a ghost. So we came, when we came back a week later, there were impressions, but it had rained so much that they were all full of water. And we didn't, I didn't have the knowledge or the skill to do anything about it. But I was, that's, I, I mean, it just was so caught me so off guard, this happening that I always tell people the, the only reason I'm still in Bigfoot today was because of that day. Because I finally got to see something that told me that, hey, even if 5% of these sighting reports I investigated are actually legitimate, it gives me some reason to believe these things exist. Because you have a lot more than a reason. I mean, you know they exist at that point. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. But, you know, it, it's a fr- I mean, and many Bigfoot people, and we see them every day where they say, well, I haven't found anything in my whole life. I'm out, you know, things like that. Well, you need to have some kind of thing that happens to you that changes that outlook. And that's what happened to me. And after that day, I said, you know what, I'm not going to give up on this thing. Do you ever go back and watch the video you filmed that day? Oh, from t- not often, but I do have it. And, you know, I'm embarrassed about it because I was so ill-prepared. I didn't even read the directions on the stupid brand new camcorder. And I, and it was like everything I said I would do, I did the total opposite. And that was having the camera out at all times, ready to record and, uh, you know, and stand my ground and everything like that. And instead, I was someone that barely knew how to use the device and, uh, you know, yeah, I got something on tape, but it's nothing to be proud of. And I'm embarrassed about it because I was, once again, when you talk the talk, you got to do it when it happens. And I didn't do it. I'm not surprised that you didn't. I'm not surprised that you didn't read the directions when you didn't read the directions to the email, how to do the podcast today. Well, exactly. And see, point proven. <laughs> Well, you know, um, I, long, long, long ago, um, I, I learned to stop predicting what I would do. People ask me that even still in the museum. What would you do if you came face to face or whatever? And it's like, it doesn't matter what you say. You're not going to do that thing anyway. You're, you're just literally not going to do it. You can pre- prepare all you want. You know, Patterson got lucky. He practiced with that saddlebag and getting the camera out and stuff. But I bet thing, I bet if he was alive today, we could ask him and he would say, oh, I, th- I thought this would happen, but this is actually what happened. And you just never know when you're, until you're actually in that situation. Well, I, I, think, I think one thing I call it is just common sense. Like you see something, let's just say like a, a, a Nile crocodile comes out of the, the pond next to you. You don't hang around a wave to it. You run like hell. Yeah. <laughs> what, about, uh, what about stories about people? What's the best story you've heard that you believe? Like what's the craziest story you've heard that you've talked to a witness that you, you, you knew personally or you just, you know, you believed them? Um, I mean, there's plenty of those, but you know, a couple that one, one that stood out to me was the, was a a hunting incident with a Stark County Sheriff who was hunting South of, I guess it would be considered Millersburg, Ohio. Um, he had access to an old farm for years and he has been, he had been hunting there for many years. He was the only one that had permission on the land and, uh, you know, and the farmer didn't even hunt the land. He was the only one that had permission. And so he would always have his game cameras set up and he'd always see the movement of the deer coming through the, through the, uh, the old gas line that came through the property. And, uh, so he knew what deer, which bucks were there, who he wanted and why. And, uh, you know, and I did an, uh, an article for the Akron Beacon Journal 
about Bigfoot some years ago. So he reached out to me and says, hey, I have a story I'd like to tell you about. You want to hook up sometime? And he's, you know, he told me he was a sheriff. So I did. I hooked up with him. And, you know, and he went on to tell me where the area was. I think it was near an area called Lake Buckhorn, if I remember, but it would be a farm close to there. You know, he says, basically, I go into the woods, it's five in the morning, it's pitch black, I get up into my tree stand, I get ready, I'm in position, he goes, I'm sitting there in my stand, I'm all strapped in, everything like that, and this was during bow season, he goes, I do, and you know, he had a sidearm on him too, he had a hand, handgun, and, uh, and he said, he goes, I'm sitting there, uh, getting comfortable in my stand, looking down the gas line cut. And he says, there was, there was still some light from the moon, and it was a clear sky, so I could see like shadows down there. And he goes, as I'm sitting there watching and, you know, waiting for the eventual deer to start coming down like they typically did, he goes, I see what he thought was a person step out of the tree line, go into about the middle of the gas cut line. Look, it looks like he, he said, it just looks like it looked back and forth or was doing something and went back into his, the wood line he was on. So the first thing he thought is who the hell's on this property no one has permission except him. The farmer is definitely not out because the farmer doesn't hunt. And so he, he was staring and staring and staring. And uh, eventually he heard a couple snorts. Well, when he heard the snorts, that was the deer coming. So all of a sudden he went back into hunting mode. And he says he sees in the distance the shapes of the deer coming through the strip, through the gas line cut toward his direction, basically coming right to him. And, uh, um, he says, all of a sudden he hears like this screech and he sees this big form coming from behind the deer, chasing him. And he says, the deer started running. And as they ran, he goes, they were running in different directions. He says one shot right under his stand, like literally right under his stand. And he watches this huge thing. And he says when it was running, it had its arms above its head and was waving them side to side. He said it looked like it was driving them. And he said it drive, drove like four deer into the wood line across from his stand. And he said when it drove those deer in the stand, he says the sounds I heard he says, he, and I remember exactly what he said. He goes, did you, have you ever seen the movie Jurassic Park? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, do you remember in the, the beginning of the movie when they were pushing that cage in with that raptor in the cage? And when the guy got pulled into the cage, the sound it made. And he goes, it was like that. He says, whatever was pushed, whatever, the deer that got pushed to that wood line, whatever had them was tearing them apart alive. And he said it was the most horrific, scary thing he ever witnessed in his life. And he goes, I had my hand on my sidearm the whole time. And he goes, I was so scared that it was roughly three hours after the incident that he finally had the courage to come down the tree stand because he said, I was so concerned there were more around. And he goes, when I got down on the base of the tree stand, he goes, I, I collected my stuff, went back to my truck, which was parked in the farmer's driveway. And he goes, when I was going to my truck, the farmer comes out of the front door and says, did you get anything? And he just looked at the farmer and said, no, and just drove away. And he, and he, he goes, I never said anything to the farmer. He goes, because I was afraid that if I told him what went down, he might not let it like me hunt ever, ever on that property again. Surprised he wanted to. Well, okay, now, and here's what he said. He goes, well, matter of fact, he goes, this happened like four years ago. He goes, 
it's been three years and I still haven't gone back. And he goes, I finally put my cameras back up and I'm thinking about going out and doing it this coming season. So, but I mean, so one thing about him, he was trained to observe, you know, he was law enforcement. He knew what he was looking at. He said, this was on two legs the whole time. He said it was huge and dark in color and uniform. He said it ran as fast as the deer could run. And he said it just was like he the, he like he kept saying the word it was driving them, driving them to the one wood line. And the ones that got driven in there, there were other ones waiting, and those were the ones doing the killing or the tearing apart. And he said, I was never more scared in my life. And he goes, I'll never forget this incident the rest of my life. And that was just one of those reports that when you hear it from a law enforcement officer and he wasn't looking for it to be published, he wasn't looking for any attention for it at all. He said it was just important that people knew that these things do exist. That's a good one. Yeah, it is. Well, I don't know if we're going to get a better story than that, but um, if we do, it's going to be uh, for our members because uh, uh, our listeners, they know that we have a membership section. If you want to be a member, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash Bigfoot and Beyond podcast. Uh, we do about an extra 45 minutes of uh, content every single week. So Mark, if you can, would you mind sticking around um, and uh, helping us out with our member section after this? Yeah, no problem. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, and what a great story to end on law enforcement, scary stuff, man. That was awesome. Well, I gotta take I gotta take off though, but yeah, thanks so much for doing it, Mark. We appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you. And yeah, for people that haven't been there, you gotta check out the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. It's the granddaddy of them all. Yeah, Mark. So where can people go to check out what you're doing? Um, I would simply go to uh, Facebook. It's called Ohio Bigfoot Conference Salt Fork, all the words there, or OhioBigfootConference.com. Um, if you guys are into big trees, look me up on Facebook, Big Trees Ohio, Instagram, Big Trees Ohio. Um, you'll, you can find me there all over. Yeah, and for our listeners, you can find all those links in the show notes. All right, Mark, thank you so much, man. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. You guys have a happy holiday season. You too, Mark. Bye. Take care. All right, Bobo, I know you have to go, but anything you want to tell us before you do split? Hope everyone had a Merry Christmas and you have a squatchy new year. All right, the same goes for me. Bobo, let's close this thing down and you can get going. Yep, all right. Thanks for tuning in, folks. And uh, we appreciate all the good reviews and five stars you've been leaving us. That's helping the show. And like we said, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. We hope you have a good one. And we'll see you next year. Adios. Keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 